welcome to episode 292 of Texing, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent. <coughs> oh, that's, <coughs> that's great. That's why I wanted the lovely <coughs> way it go. Damn. A good start. You know, they say if you have a strong beginning, things. <laughs> things uh, wait, wait. You know, like, things get better, your right? If you have what is that thing about like. Like, make sure you win your morning because then you win your day. Okay. So, we got to win the intro there, Justin. <coughs> <coughs> <It's> brutal. <coughs> Welcome to episode 292 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we have um, a the guest, a guest with us, uh, Phil Amon. <laughs> I am the guest. He's the as guest. Well. <laughs> I am um, a guest that is the guest. Back <clears throat> by popular demand of two, two people asked for him back. That's good enough for me. <laughs> so, uh, Jason over there being very quiet. He's yeah, on his phone. You're, you're backgrounding. Present. He is already well, backgrounding. Present, no, present here. He is, he is in the room, present. All right. So, how are you doing? I'm doing well. What's going on? Uh, well, I'm right now, I'm just checking to make sure that the Math Academy website is up where the kids are doing their homework. Okay. And... Uh, so this, is a, this is a that. teaching moment for you to about test-driven development. Yeah, well, that's yeah. A that learning, lesson is a not going to learn. I'm not using test-driven development. Yeah, how I don't have the time for that go? bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, as with any software that's sort of being built in the early stages and being used by users, it's a little unstable. How but, many kids are using it right now? Well, it's just the ten in my class, but you know, it's under heavy use by them, right? Because it's gonna suck every... if they can't turn in their homework, for example. Yeah, and obviously I don't want that to happen, so that's kind of a lot of pressure because if it goes down for any length of time, you know, there's only a small window of homework. I don't know, isn't that kind of like the old like snow days, you know? Yeah, the exactly. server's right. down. They kinda like it. Oh, yeah, oh the teacher's it. sick. Oh, I mean I feel bad the teacher's sick, but then I don't have to actually do my homework. Well <laughs> exactly. Well, that is... What would you do if it went down right the second? Well, it did, it well, did yeah, go I just go and I restart it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, you know, the problem with Node, unlike, like, say, PHP, where it's just, you know, a Node takes on the whole damn thing. You know, there can be um, bigger problems than PHP just loads a script and if it doesn't work, you know, doesn't necessarily affect So there's some, like, memory leak or something and it just blows up the server? No, no, le- le- memory leak, but the whole... I mean, you can keep that from happening by catching errors and stuff, but I haven't put that stuff in there because I wanted it errors happen so that I see them and I, I have put on all the proper logging and error catching stuff that I need to because it's just so, so if it breaks circuit. you literally have no effing idea why yeah well no I have logging <laughs> but it's, oh, have it's, logging. it's not written to a file it's just out to standard out and I mean it's all like working prototype stuff right like I was nice. building everything so quickly and then I just have an out and they're using it and now, so, I, now I got to take a step back and I got to kind of re-engineer <clears throat> pieces of it to be a little more so you're writing standard out to a log Actually, I'm not even doing that. I'm just doing, I was, you know, I mean, this is embarrassing to say, but, you know, when you're just writing for yourself and you're trying something quickly, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just like console.log this, console.log that. So all the queries and the output and everything is going to out and I'm kind of watching it, um, you know, which has been fine. I mean, you probably totally know this, but all you have to do is when you start the script, just do double forward arrow and then the text file and then it'll just log it all to a text file. Right, right. No, I know. That, but right? I, okay. I, a lot of times I've just been having it. Sure. You okay. know, but, you know, there's the, the, the stuff that I've, you know, obviously I've written stuff there where if you catch the errors and then it, it'll just keep going and it'll just kind of swallow it and stuff. But I've been so busy just writing basic functionality and content for the site that I didn't even have taken the, you know, hour and a half to two hours to just write that. That's right. That kind of just, stuff. Just do, do stuff that doesn't scale and um, well, you know, it is get like, it out there. Yeah. So it's like, it's interesting. A lot of times I either find myself in one or two positions. Either you're spending a lot of time working and tweaking and perfecting this beautiful code base that nobody uses, or you write this kind of 
piece of crap prototype that people were actually using yeah, and absolutely. you're stressed out. It's like, it's, it's so hard to like actually have both happen. You know, yeah. it's either, it's li- and the reason that it's live <laughs> is because you just punt, you just kicked it out the door and said, go. I know you don't have any clothes on, but go run around the neighborhood. You know I mean? It's just ridiculous. Or it's this thing that's like this perfect thing and then it just never leaves the house. And uh, So are, are you excited about it? Does it have all the questions? I mean, like, wh- where are you at with questions and like the um, quality control of the questions, all that type of stuff? Well, so it, what ended up happening is I, I, I hired like 10, I say hired, I, I recruited 10 college students to write questions and I, and I gave each of them three hours of time. I said, I'll pay you for three hours of time. Even if your, your questions are awesome or they suck, I'm going to pay you for the three hours regardless. And if they aren't up to standards, I don't think I can, you know, I don't think it's good fit, then I'll, I'll pay you and then that'll be it. If it is good, if you do a good job or, you know, I work with you, then I'll, um, you know, we'll make it go for it. What are you smiling? What, what, what are you, I'm what smiling you looking at you lying on, uh, on that huge, big brown leather chair on that, like, uh, bare... <laughs> <laughs> bear skin. <laughs> it's awesome. Well, you know, I wanted I, it, but I, he always I, grabs that chair first. Yeah, he well, you know, who picked this chair out? Oh, you I picked did. it out? I, hell no. Well, you I, helped me no, bring it No, I was downstairs and you were looking. There was a bunch of chairs and I said, this is it, man. <laughs> this is it. This big one. And I forget, it has a name to it. It was like the Cooper chair or the something chair. What's the, the Turner, name? I think. Yeah, Turner. it's like, this is just huge. Oh, it's amazing little chair. And I said, all right, well, I'm going to help carry this back to your place, but then it's my chair over at your place. <laughs> and you're like, fine. But did you also pick out the bear skin? No, that's a Phil Flourish. Yeah, that's nice. I like it, though. Yeah, it's it good. is. Yeah, it's very it's good, a nice good for the good. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, in terms of the, the questions, <laughs> so I went through all that, but then I spent so much time interfacing with all of the authors teaching, having screen share sessions, talking about how I wanted the right questions and going through all that stuff. And then spending a ton of time on the authoring tool so that they could log in and write questions and submit them and the approval process and all the sort of the GitHub style functionality of yeah. revision and re- reversion and, uh, and diffing and just all that crap. And then the system I had, then my class got started and I was like, holy crap, I got to get like the basic question algorithm you know, and the Q&A system and all that working for the kids to use, right? Yeah. And so then I spent a few weeks working on all that, and and then all of a sudden it was like, okay, now I don't have any questions. But I didn't have time to figure out who am I going to talk to and how am I going to get them to write the questions. So I ended up just writing questions. But then it was like I was always writing questions the night before the day of the homework was going to be due. Right. So I've been in this sort of hamster wheel So is this, the, is this not the first time that the kids have used the software? No, they've been doing it for, you know, about the last two and a half weeks. So this is their ninth assignment. Great. So I do assignment every day of the week or awesome. every weekday. A, a, a has it becoming, has it been like a little less buggy every time? Yeah, sure. Awesome. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, great. But so I've been writing tons of questions, you know, and, uh, and then you got to write out the t- fully worked out solutions and I got to write text, the whole, you know, <laughs> here's how you multiply and divide complex numbers. And that's a whole half page explanation with examples. And I got to write all the <laughs> questions and all the solutions and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I just got one of the guys, there's, there's a handful of these authors who are um, pretty motivated. They keep letting me know, like, hey, you know, when you are ready, you know, or when you do need help, please let me know. So one of the guys who'd, who'd been communicating with me like that, I just said, hey, listen, Daniel, I need some stuff like tomorrow. Can you do it? And he's like, yeah. So if, if, because <laughs> some people are really easy to communicate with. They're like always on Skype and always text. And so I could say, all right, yeah. here, I need, you see, I've got five <laughs> questions. I need 10 more. I need them by four o'clock. And, you know, he's done a good job. So at least that's taking a little pressure on me. 
last couple of days. So nice. that's kind of where we're at. But I, there's a couple of problems with this, the, question, the question algorithm. So what it does is, so I'll assign one to three topics, let's say for a day. So we cover three topics in a class and there'll be, you know, and so they'll have to answer a few questions from each topic plus questions from selected review topics that the system pulls in based on how many days have passed and how well they did. Um, but what the system does is you have to get three correct in a row for you to be done with that topic. Ah, but right. it mixes them all together. So if you get two right and then you miss one, resets it to zero. And mm. there's been a couple situations where kids led to like 70 problems and they were just like, <laughs> could not figure out a topic and it was just incorrect answer after incorrect answer. And I'm like, all right, I need like a cap out. Like at some point, like they're just not going to get it. Or like, here's another thing I just looked at this one kid. So there's multiplying matrices. And one thing I don't do is, so when you get asked a question, you can refresh and it'll ask a different question. I'm not saving it like this is the current question. Right, right. And I've been planning it. It's just been like, I haven't had the 15 minutes it takes to, to do that, you know, and test it. So I can see what he's doing. Whenever he gets a hard matrix multiplication, he refreshes. Ah. <laughs> or he refreshes. Or, 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 or actually, actually, no, he doesn't refresh. Who's that? I like Which him. Which kid is that? <laughs> Or actually, he's not even being that clever. He's just getting it wrong and waiting for the next one. Because I say we took four seconds to multiply a two by three times a three by four matrix. And you obviously not going to do that in four seconds. So yeah. he was just like, I don't know, or wrong, you know. <laughs> and so I have to, like, you know, when you start doing this, you see user behavior and you have to kind of yeah. mold the system to prevent them from doing things you don't want them to do. And especially when it's kids yeah. with something like this. Who will try anything. Like, okay, how do I get out? Like, I'm... And I, I, I warned them in class, I said, listen, the system does not forgive, it does not forget. It will never let you out. So if you, you can't not learn something. It's going to hunt you down and find you. It's like that person's going to hunt you down and corner <laughs> you and keep asking you questions until you get the, the right answer. The sales guy that won't quit. Yep. So, I mean, <clears throat> I, that's an important and useful aspect of the system. But anyway, it, it's a matter of getting algorithm just right so that it, you know doesn't uh isn't overly punitive and doesn't allow too many escape mechanisms and, and stuff but cool yeah but uh anyway i'm always a little bit uh um so when when does it get used um by the other schools in the district all this stuff you know <clears throat> so one thing that's happened so the 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 the, the pilot program you're referring to the math yeah. academy which is supposed to roll out in six schools i haven't heard an update in about a week and a half or so. I'm assuming it's gonna start in the next couple of weeks, hmm. but the school year is really getting going. I mean, it's already February and they're already talking about only running it up till May. So, I mean, what, what, we're not gonna have much of a run. So at best, this is gonna be putting our, dipping our toes in the water. Right, right. So That sucks. And the, the, the big change is that the district is hiring a school teacher to teach it as opposed to these the the, the college students mm -hmm. and the college students will just be like tas mm. so the the one reason that the 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 system was going to be particularly useful was that it would allow me to keep up to date on how everyone was doing in every class across the district and everything like that and it would be a lot of a very consistent um you know level of homework and everything but if there's just one teacher teaching at all six schools mm. on an itinerant teacher then wow. i don't have to worry about it and, and if it's like a so I'm, I, don't, I don't know if I want to put the pressure on myself to deal with putting that into the system now. I'd rather just use it on my kids for this year. Yeah, right. You already got the, you already got enough pressure going on there. Yeah. So I'll just I'm just like you know what I mean. He, if he's a credential teacher, he can 
do I, you do the homework how he wants. <clears throat> and so that's the thing I don't know about. I mean, I don't know how much say or influence I'm going to have in terms of how he's teaching these classes. I mean, even though the whole thing is but that, modeled after our class. Yeah. Well, it's one thing to have a thing modeled after your class and you have some college students and you go and you say, listen, this is how I want you to teach it. It's another thing if I hire some, you know, no, 10 totally or 15 different. year old veteran teacher and they're going to be like, yeah, I'm a credential teacher. I'm going to teach it how I teach and I know what I'm talking about. I mean, right. That's, you know, I'm yeah. not, I'm not, I mean, I have no idea. Maybe they'll be very open to it, but I'm, I'm not overly confident that I'm going to have a whole lot of say in how it's. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. I mean, we will see. Hmm. We'll see. But at the very least, I'm not going to worry about them using the software right now. I just don't need the, I don't think it's, um, it's just not ready for that. And I don't want to deal with the stress. But after running this, this thing for my kids for the year, it'll be completely battle tested and, and hardened for that by next year if we decide to use it in the, for the academy next year hmm. which I'm, I would assume we probably would but I'm but this year it's just obviously just going to be kind of a even even the academy itself is going to be kind of a will it, test will you ever kind of make it available to the general public yeah that's my plan I mean once you yeah. have all these questions and and uh you know, uh, topics and stuff on there and everything. It's why not? I am like dying for it to exist. I want to learn math. You know, I mean, me having no do math. You really? Yeah. I, I mean, I, a lot of people say things no, like no, that. I, I always wonder. Does I, I really? really want? I really do. I mean, I would love to just have that thing existing and then start at the bottom and then work my way up like a game. Yeah. And see where I could get to. Yeah. And then there's probably a lot of math anxiety in the world. Uh, yeah. People who want to know math. Yeah. As a subject, because it's probably one of those that people feel is deficient, and they know, like in their bones that they should know math exactly yeah and and the fact that i i do programming and i can do programming and you know i'm cto and i've been programming for 25 years makes me think that i could do math even though i'm a bit scared about <laughs> it you know yeah you know yeah it's funny speaking of doing math there was a uh, there was an article that came up um i think it was marvin minsky i was on hacker news a couple mm, days ago yeah he just and, died right yeah he just died and so people were posting stuff that he'd written and one thing was talking about you know, typical like how math should be taught and this and that. And there was this, you know, as usual, the complaining about learning your memorizing your multiplication tables. Like I don't even know why people always get so upset about that as if it's like this big deal. It's like learning, oh, learning the alphabet was so hard. It's like, like really, such a big deal. But when, in, the, in the comment, there was a big long comment thread that was started by one guy who was talking about how he said, yeah, well, it's shown that like kids, you know, before I think what he is, I think he said before eleven. But even older can't, maybe it's 13 or 14, maybe he said 13 or 14 can't learn abstract reasoning. Like their brains aren't developed enough to do algebra and stuff like that. So, and he was saying, you know, kids in the medieval ages, like these kids didn't even do this stuff until they're 19 or 20. And that doing it younger, they don't really understand what they're doing, that they really don't understand what they're doing. So when you have kids doing algebra and stuff in middle school or something, just they really don't have the capacity of it. And I, I turned to Colby later and I'm like, <laughs> so Colby, I hear that you actually don't understand what you're doing and he just kind of like, <laughs> rolls his eyes, like you should have answered yeah no, i'm not gonna get in i mean because you know, people it's just most of these things are on baseless opinions oh i read this and i have this opinion it's like yeah but, you know you know what you're talking about you know but it's just I mean, what, what what do i care to change this guy's opinion he has an opinion he read an article that's what he thinks that's what he thinks you know i don't mm -hmm. think people on hacker news changing else's opinions they just like to spend time how arguing. would they categorize abstract reasoning what do they mean by that well, see, that's the thing. It's like, how do I know when you understand it, right? Are you just, right. is this, I mean, it's like they always say, like, you know, we're talking about is machine artificial intelligent or is it just some parlor trick, right? Is this kid just memorizing stuff 
and just mimicking, but do they truly understand it? And I always be like, well, they don't truly understand it because they have to do blah, 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 and they keep changing the game, changing the rules and stuff. And uh, But they must be able to understand. I mean, it must be proof if you throw, you know, 15 questions at Colby that all have random variables, and then he always gets the answer right. Yeah, or like... That's the proof, isn't it? Yeah, mm. I, mean, it's, I mean, it's just it's preposterous. Even because, you know, I can do word problems, he can do an algebra. Like, like, so one of the things I've been teaching them this last few weeks is, a few things is matrices, um, you know, logarithmic exponential equations and complex numbers and things like that. So um, I t in last, you know, last couple of days, you know, the, the system's been throwing questions and, and solving logarithmic equations. So like... 2 times a log of 2x minus 1 plus log of x squared minus 2 equals 7, solve for x, that kind of stuff. So it takes, you have to understand various properties of logarithms and, and manipulate, thing around, manipulate them around and use the algebra. He does it all in his head, which drives me insane. Because I'm like, Colby, write it down so you don't make a mistake. But he'll, he'll just look at it and go, well, okay, well, x equals... Seven eights, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, funny because I was getting an argue with him like it was two mornings ago. Yeah, because he didn't write it down. Well, because he wasn't writing it down because I thought he was going to miss it, and because he missed it, he was he had, was on his third one. I knew he, I kind of had looked over his shoulder, and he was on his third one, and he'd been done. And I knew if he missed it, he would get mad. Like, Man, the system, you know, crap, you know, and. You know, what is this? So many of these hard questions, and he would just get all grumpy. And I'm just like, Colby, just write this down, and get it right, so he'd be done. Because he's doing it in the morning because he had baseball practice at 30 and didn't have a chance to do it the night before. And it would be kind of stressful if he didn't finish it and da-da-da, right? So I'm kind of you know, I'm kind of brushing my teeth and, and I would kind of walk and I kind of look over and I'm like, Colby, do it on paper. But he just wouldn't do it. And then he's like saying something and I'm kind of getting mad at him because he won't do it. And then, of course, and I'm just like waiting for him to miss it so I can be like, I told you so. And, and he then he like, gets it right. I'm like, <laughs> did you did you see the post on uh, that was recently on Hacker News? How to ra raise a creative child? Yeah, I actually read it this morning. Yes, that, I thought that was cool. So, like, step one: back off and um, just talking about how child prodigies, prod prodigies, prodigies, uh, you know, rarely become adult geniuses because of the, of the rules that they follow. Right. So they kind of they 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 kind of are into pleasing. They're into kind of at least that's the speculation. That's at least that's what the guy, author's speculating. Right. Um, you know, yeah. I mean. Kids with less rules basically find new ways of because they're because they're not so bound by the rules. They'll be more like an Elon Musk, for example. Yeah. Well, the the idea being that I can't remember the person who quoted. I can't remember the the author. The, the, it was a, a critic. Was it William something? And he said <laughs> that when you have people like that, where the parents or the teachers just drill and you just really push to become really good at what current mastering the current techniques, current knowledge. Yeah. Coming, the excellent sheep, right? Right, right. And yeah. which is, I thought it was an interesting uh, phrase. But, um, you know, I, I was kind of thinking about that too. I was thinking about like with what I do and with Kobe. So, for instance, like, I don't think Kobe is going to be, become a mathematician, right? Kobe is an engineer. I mean, he spends like, he's spending all morning this morning building um, in Tinkercad, which is like a 3D modeling environment. He's building these hover wheels, which which were like, you know, kind of like like almost like a helicopter wheels, but inside like a container, like so you might see like on a hovercraft or something. Mm -hmm. And he has he downloaded this Lamborghini and it transformed the wheels into like so they, like these hover. They look like wheels, they look like with cool like rims, but then they turn sideways and then they become 
like a hovercraft. Right. Check that out. It's like that's the stuff he does in the zone. So that's the stuff he likes. Well, you're just giving him you're just giving him a language that makes it easier to do what he wants. Right? I'm giving him the tools so that when he goes and wants to major in aerospace engineering or whatever the heck, math is a layup for him. Like he's he's un, then it unleashes his creativity. He's not like, oh man, you know, I'm an engineering, mm. but I just can't get through this differential equations course, or I can't. No, it's like no, that's removing this from the board is an issue for you because this is this trips up a huge number of kids, especially if you get into a top school and you're competing against international kids and you're competing against the you know kids who really do have exceptional mathematical preparation. So I'm not like saying, you oh, know, this is how to be a mathematician or do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, you know, and he likes it. No, you've always said that. You've always said that it's it's a building block. I let him, yeah, I mean, and I, I, even then, even with the homework and stuff like that, I try and keep it very minimal, you know, I don't want to be in his face about stuff, because, you know, that stuff can backfire very easily, but I heard him, I heard him talking to a kid, he, so he plays Minecraft, not Minecraft, Robocraft, hmm. uh, with a number of different kids, friends of his, and so they're talking over Skype, and they're coordinating their battles, it's like an online arena, you know, and they're building their, ro their robot crafts, and they're all competing against each other, and and while they're offline and they're tweaking their bots and they're talking, Colby starts talking about, yeah, you know, oh, he's like, do you hear about Math Academy? It's like, you know, we do like calculus stuff like that. And he's like, yeah, I like advanced math or I like this stuff. And I was like, like, so he's like the sort of pride in it, you <laughs> nice. know? And I, nice. and I was thinking about it. It's like, I think he likes math. I mean, he enjoys it. But one of the things he enjoys about it, he enjoys being good at it. He enjoys being, this means I'm smart. I'm competitive, and it means I'm smart, and so it's kind of a game. And when I think about things that I've been good at, it wasn't always just for purely the thing itself, but it was sometimes for these other things about it that made you feel about yourself. And I think it's always, there's a certain legitimacy to that. You know, it doesn't have to be like, do you, you know, why do you like this? Mm -hmm. It's really how does it make you feel, and it could be more complex than just, I'm fundamentally interested in just this very aspect of this thing. Mm. You know, like when you were a musician, was it just purely the love and the creativity of the song? Or was it just like, hey, I'm a musician, I'm a frontman for a band, I'm singing, I like how people make it feel, makes me think about myself. It's a lot of stuff. All the things, yeah. All the different the different facets. I think yeah. that feeds into those theories of education where you want to give feedback to children while they're learning something that encourages that loop you're talking about, that they feel that whether whatever it is math or art mm -hmm. and you say that's great you give them that positive reinforcement because then that gives that reward cycle it feels good to do well at something wow this math was great um and i, I totally get that yeah like i noticed like i talked to him yesterday so we've been doing a lot of these math uh, i've been teaching the kid how to do math, math proofs right mm -hmm. like really like a college level proofs not you know two column geometry stuff and it's been it's you know it's a big challenge it's a big challenge to teach older kids, college kids, and even much less, you know, um, younger kids. And Colby has been good at it. He's, he's a little probably above the, the, the mean, maybe in the middle of the class, but there are some kids who are, who, who I think are just a little more comfortable with it. And I saw him in a class today, like, oh, last class I said, well, I think someone said, are we going to do more proofs? I said, yeah, we're going to do proofs. He was like, I'm going to do proofs. Hmm. And I knew it is just because he was, he didn't feel like he could dominate in it. Right. As soon right. as he feels like he's one of the best or can dominate, he wants to do it. And so I'm like, so I told him, I say, hey, Colby, so how about on Sunday we just sit down for like 15 minutes, we just go over proofs a little bit, because I, I noticed something, like you don't like to, you don't like to play if you don't feel confident. He's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, all right. Because <laughs> I noticed like he, as soon as there's something he's good at, he's like, let's do that. 
<laughs> he likes to stack the deck. I'm like, all right, well, fine. You know, I mean, whatever makes whatever gets you excited about it. If you feel like you're one of the top kids, and we can sit down for 15 minutes just to you know make you feel like you're confident, then we'll do that. You know, because one thing he asked me the system. Well, he's really interested in the system because he's like, he's like, well, when can we? When are you going to build it so that we can go in and and level up in things on our own? You know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm planning on building that. But it was interesting that he was asking to do more, mm. but he wanted to do more so that he could be better. So that because he's so competitive, right? Because he's constantly it's looking. It's happy place. Because yeah, he's competitive, and 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 he, in, which he gets from me, because I'm extremely competitive, <laughs> and I understand that's there's pluses and minuses of that. But like, there's a for every homework assignment, you can see how far what your progress is on the assignment and what your accuracy rate is. Mm. So you're, they're constantly checking how many questions the other kid had to answer, the other kids had to answer, what their accuracy rate was. So they can see everyone else's. It's always very competitive because he's usually one of the more accurate, and he gets pissed off when Ezra, who's the eighth grader, he's pretty good <laughs> and he's pretty conscientious. You know, I, I think he actually writes the problems down instead of solving them in his head. Ah. <laughs> so, make, so he sometimes nudges Colby out by a couple percent in accuracy. Which, Man! <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, good. And that's one of the reasons I put it up there because I knew a half my, at least half my kids are very competitive. And they're going, and that is going to drive them to do better. The kids who aren't competitive aren't even going to look at it because they don't care. But whatever it takes, you know? That's great. Whatever keeps them excited and, and you know, doing the work. Um, do you mind if I uh, switch, switch topics? Yeah, do it. Um, I know that the last time we had Phil on, we closed the show by saying that we might talk about some of his experience as a VC, oh. as an angel. Uh-oh. <laughs> we did? We did. No, you, we did. We you, talked about, yeah, like, talking about startups and talking yeah, about that culture. You, so, you, yeah, basically, you... I was not a VC, just well, to so clarify. What, what were you? Well, I was... Um, so this is all... The background was I went, went to business school, booth, Chicago Booth, and studied entrepreneurship and accounting and finance and all that. And one of the things that... Hey, let me clarify something. So we say Chicago Booth... University of Chicago's graduate school business, and it's generally one of the top five business schools in the country. So it's Wharton, Stanford, Harvard, Chicago. I don't know what else. Is top so five. he did that as just like to pass the time. Yeah, yeah. So he went to. So You're yeah. Me so this blush. is one of the best in the world, and he actually <laughs> graduated high honors. And he was like the hit. So he was good. He wasn't this guy just. The, well, just, I tell you, you know. you know, when you love. I mean, this is going to sound really weird, but yeah, you, know, you love. I, I love business. So when I went to school there, I really was really going to learn the stuff. And a lot of people who go to business school, you know, and they, they actually take surveys on this. A lot of people go to network and a lot of people go to get the degree and only, you know, a small percentage really are interested sort of just in the information. But like, why, why do you love business? I mean, just biz, capital B business. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, I grew up with a, a, a dad who was a small businessman and I sort of grew up in that environment and right. I got infected by it a little bit in a positive mm. way. And yes. I wanted to understand it. Yeah. And, you know, and, and also I am more of a practical person. I think at the end of the day, you know, I studied sort of theoretical mathematics, but I like, I like getting something done and business is a way to do that. And certainly I gravitated towards the more mathematical elements of business, the accounting, the finance, the things like that. Um, I'd never really gravitate towards marketing or sales because I viewed those as um, a little more intractable. But what's what's cool about business school is there are people, really smart people, who approach marketing and sales very analytically. And there is a science to it, um, which is just fascinating in of itself. So I have a lot of respect to 
one of the things about great things about going to business school is you do have a breadth of you you have to take all the subjects right, right. you can't just i mean you could go to a specialty school and just study finance certainly but I, I don't understand why you so you go you go to business school you come out with flying colors and then a firm like a vc firm or an angel firm or something well, not an angel firm but what, what like how do they find you and say okay we're going to take a risk on you and you're going to vet deals for us how does that well work? um it's probably not as glamorous as that um the school has an affiliate angel group called the Hyde Park Angels. Right. Okay. And they're made up of wealthy, you know, angel investors. Um, and of course, with the deal flow that an angel group gets, they need people to be the analysts for them. And so huh. part of the the relationship they have with Chicago Booth is that they'll take 10 to 12 or 8 uh, students every year mm -hmm. to become analysts. So it's only Chicago Booth students who are eligible to do that. So it's not you're not competing necessarily with the broad space of everyone in Chicago, right? Uh, but you, it's it's a pretty competitive process even still. Maybe fifty people apply, and maybe the numbers have changed. But you know, a lot of people want to be analysts for the Angel Group because that is a way to get experience on the deal side as an analyst. Because that's an that's a way to get into the VC world. How long were you doing that for? So I was actively doing angel analyst stuff for about a year and a half. Nice. And how many deals would, would, would you have got through in that time? Well, you know, you look, the numbers are high because I probably looked at 50 or 60 deals, but you've right. got to remember that I'm also the first person to see a deal. So I'm actually the guy people are trying to get through. Right. Right. I mean, that's the sad truth is that with so much deal flow, a lot of the, um, you don't get to a partner. You know, the, the partners will hire screeners to some degree and they trust it. So, you know, I'll look at a deal and then find a clear negative in it and then that deal will be out. So did I look at 60 deals? Sure, but some deals you look at in one day. Was there any deals that made it all the way to get funding? Absolutely, yeah. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that that's one of the interesting things is what kind of deals did get through the system. And they're not always the best deals. They're not always the deals that um, are what you would call like a quick deal. Right. Um, and partly because of the nature of angel funding is different. So angel funding exists as one funding channel amongst many, like VCs and uh, sort of your traditional friends and family round, which, you know, things like that. So for a deal that's really, really fast or really popular, a great deal, those entrepreneurs are probably looking at getting funded through a VC quickly, whereas in angels, you know, and they, these things evolve over time, but angels traditionally are a little slower because, you know, if an angel deal comes through our pipeline, I might look at it. I fill out a deal sheet. I take it to a meeting. Then we, we talk about the deal. We, we, the partners bring up their concerns based on my analysis and there's further due diligence. So you're looking at potentially you know, months before you might get money. There's a lot more moving parts. There's a lot more moving parts. And so therefore the really, and this is something we talked about within the angel group was how do we compete with a VC who can sit down with you at coffee at Intelligentsia and cut you a check that afternoon? You know, those, you know, if they see a deal they like, they have the authority to just do it. Um, <laughs> and it's very hard to compete for those kind of deals. So some of the arguments that you can make about angel groups is that, you know, where, where's our advantage is that because there's 80 or 90 of us pooled together, we have a lot more resources available. So, you know, in our membership, for example, there may be 10 people who have deep manufacturing backgrounds. So if you're a manufacturer, 
and you need that expertise, we have it. A VC certainly can be very experienced in maybe a field or two, but they won't have the breadth of 80 or 90 um, people who are traditionally more self-made in business. So that that's an advantage. I mean, if you're looking at where you're going to take your money from, one of the things we always would pitch to entrepreneurs is we have resources with our community. You said it was it was interesting what the kind of deals were that got through. Like what what was it? What, what? Well, there's um, there's biases, I think, um, and I don't necessarily think they're bad biases, but I think they're biased towards deals that um, are very low capital intensive, um, that have in a sense, like a very high market appeal, like a broad market. So they're looking for things with low, I mean, these are sort of the common sense things, but but like low capital, high market. And um, some of those deals that didn't get through were more or less, they would require more time. Mm -hmm. They would require more capital. Um, the, The business may have less risk, but the market size wasn't as large. Um, now angels, of course, have a different horizon than VCs who often are, are linked to a fund. So they're going to need to, when they fund something, they're going to need to go to an exit within, you know, five to seven years to get that fund done. Whereas an angel can go even further. And so when you look at deals that angels might be attracted to, I would think an angel would be attracted to a deal that actually might be unattractive to a VC. Mm-hmm. VC would pass on it because you know what, there's, it's just too long. You're, you're getting in early. This is a really... Maybe let's say the technology doesn't, um, you know, I mean, you might be too early. Mm-hmm. An angel may sit and wait. I've seen that. So it's a different psychology. I would say to a person raising money, you do have to put on the hat of the person who you're talking to and see like what kind of deals are interesting to them. Interesting. Jason, do you have any questions for Phil about this? I this, know Phil pretty well. Uh, no, I've but pretty the, much heard. But, oh, all yeah, it. he's heard it all. Let, let I've heard, heard it all three times. Let me rephrase. And I'm sounding okay. so no, serious. <laughs> I'm so serious. I'm like, Not questions, but yeah. things that would be interesting to highlight that you know from your insider experience. Well, you know, I thought one of the things the more interesting things. See, uh, yeah, cue me. Well, what, what's well interesting? I'll, I'll just say some stuff. So Phil <laughs> likes to downplay some stuff. You know, he doesn't want to, but I, so but I don't have to downplay what he does. Just, oh, okay, you know, I'm not him. So I think it was kind of cool. So he. It, it, which class was it where you had the head TAs and the head TAs? Oh, Meadows? entrepreneurial finance. Yeah, entrepreneurial Scott finance. So yeah. that was like this big deal class. And well, he was a real VC. He's what they call a clinical professor. So he's he's someone who's teaching because he was in there doing it. So that was yeah. funny. So if you if you did really well, if you aced his class, and this class was big, right? Like they had it's like a lecture hall, yeah, yeah. like hundred people or some crazy number, like 80. 80. So then. If you ace the class, you would be, he might ask you, tap you to be a TA, one of the TAs. And how many TAs were there? Front front level TAs? Four to six. Four to six TAs. And then you ran a discussion section. Is that right? You mm-hmm. how it works? You, you handled all of the grading and um, any kind of answering questions. Working yeah. with it. Working so, with the, the students in the class. And these other business school students, right? But then if you did really well as a TA, you'd get tapped to be the head TA, Right. Oh, yeah. And so then you became the head TA for entrepreneurial finance, mm-hmm. which was funny because he said when he was just a TA, like Meadows wouldn't even look at him. He doesn't look or talk to you directly as a TA. He, t- he might be looking at you, but talking to the head TA about what he wants you to do. <laughs> <laughs> that was really interesting, right? And then you became the TA, uh, the head TA, right? And so he would Yeah, he, he, well, he would, you know what's interesting? I learned a lot from Meadows. He's an amazing guy. 
Um, and I have to admit, I was caught up in a lot of that. Um, you you see these cults, like you always feel like he's a cult of personality. He, he's a big gun. Everybody's climbing them. I fell into it. I was like, he was such an amazing Give us personality. Give a background about about him. Well, he he was a VC who his name I, Scott Meadows. Yeah, okay. he was um, Sports Authority was one of his bigger deals, and you know he was pretty active in the '80s. And you know, I don't really actually feel comfortable telling every deal that he ever did because oh, I, I don't know yeah. if I can be an authority on his on his thing, but. He's uh, just a really generous guy, and he right. has a lot of great stories. And I fell under sort of a spell of just <laughs> I loved it. Like every every class, you would have uh, amazing anecdotes and things that um, you just felt like you were in the presence of someone. That's all I can say about someone, it. it yeah. you, you felt I fell under it, and it was a great feeling because you just feel like you're uh, when you're in the room, you feel like you're a part of something. Right. So that was really really cool. Um, nice. But yeah, no. To to Jason's point, he really the TAs were. A hierarchy and he had a circle of trust so the head tas were people who he trusted and those tas were really the ones who picked they picked the, the graders the, yeah he didn't get involved in picking the ta so he trusts that's what i learned about business is there's trust and when you have a hierarchy you you work with the people beneath you and then you trust and delegate he was an amazing delegator he was able to achieve a lot in his life because he built a team an efficient team and he trusted them and he delegated and i was like that's the takeaway here and that he never actually explicitly ever said. That's like you can learn by listening to what people say and you can learn by watching what people do. And sometimes by just watching how a great leader or a great teacher works, you're like, that's, that's awesome. Uh, and, and then when I got to the head TA spot, I definitely understood what my role was because I, I'd seen it. And then I realized that's how businesses can self-perpetuate because you come in and then you see how it works and you know how you fulfill your roles as you move through it. It's a very, it's like, there so was never a point where he said, here's how a head TA behaves. Do you know what I'm saying? It was like, it's like systematic. It's like what that thing that Jason said, you were kind of debunking. People say that you you succeed by failing, but actually you succeed by succeeding, which is kind of, this is, this is that, right? Nothing succeeds like success. Yeah. A lot of people just, most people fail most of the time at most things and they still don't pick up any, you know, any real momentum, right? I mean, I think people, I mean, you can learn a lot from success, you can learn a lot from failure. It just kind of depends on the environment you're in and it's really context dependent. You know, like you can, there's a, there's usually a finite number of ways to succeed, but there's like an infinite number of ways to fail, right, you know? So right. just because you fail, the information gain on that fail may not be that great. But then people sometimes say, well, when you, when you succeed, sometimes you're not very introspective. You're just like, hey, I'm just really smart. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm you know, destined to succeed. And then when people fail, that they become very reflective and do a big postmortem. But those, I don't think those things are necessarily true all the time. You know, a lot of, some people are introspective no matter what. And some people aren't introspective no matter what, whether they succeed or fail. And so those kind of things, but anyway, I think those kind of discussions are hard to have because like a lot of things, um, it really depends on what your definitions are. And those are very context dependent. You know, it's like, who is it? Witt Wittgenstein was his big thing about philosophy is like, look, when everybody's, when everybody really agrees on the definitions, of what we're talking about, there's really nothing to talk about. It's very simple. It's the problem is when every, when nobody is agreeing on the definitions. And so when you're going to Hacker News, for instance, and you have a lot of very bright people arguing, 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 you, it, you can just tell that people's definitions for all kind of things are not really clearly stated. What is equality? What is success? What is failure? What is this? It's like nobody will, when you, if you really define these down specifically, most of it's pretty, pretty common sense and you'd probably reach a consensus. And uh, anyway, so 
the thing about the whole success failure thing is something I think about a lot and people's sort of takeaways on it. And I don't know. I don't really have a, I guess I don't have a final concluding point on that, but. So, um, do you want to do business? Mm. Like, so, so like, because I know you did that year and a half. Are you going to do the business? Like, are you going to do business? business? (laughs) Yeah. How do you do business? Because you really love business. Are you going to do do business? Um, like what are you like? What are you doing right I, now? I think that's, that's business. Those are very doing valid. Business. That's very. Va- Why are you up in my business about my business? Take care of business. I'm taking care of business. Um, no, I agree. I think there's some weird uh, thought in my head that I want to start a company just to run a business. You know, it seems like a very um, meta. It, well, it seems meta, but it also seems the opposite of most entrepreneurs. They have an idea. And they're passionate about that, but they hate the idea of running a business. They don't want to do all of the accounting and setting up structure. And, you know what I mean? Well, that's perfect because then there's no need for you to think of an idea. Just any can, idea. You should be the first follower. That's I what am. You should I be. actually, I think if, when I, if I reflect on my life and I do see myself, I am a really good first follower because if somebody had an idea that they're passionate about, but they don't know how to run a business, whereas I enjoy running a business and I, the idea certainly has to work. And part of any, if you're a first follower type person, and maybe there's listeners out there who are similar to me, um, you still have to do due diligence on the idea. I mean, just for your own life, because you're committing, even as a first follower, three to five years. I mean, you know these options deals. I mean, they're long hauls. So you don't just want to say, hey, I just like running a business. Well, you should run a business that has a chance to make (laughs) money. (laughs) Well, you know, what's ironic about this whole thing is that he he's right. He was the first follower in in our first startup. So I came with his idea, yeah. raised the money, pulled him in. But at that time, he didn't know how to do the business. <laughs> the he we was did not, useless he, business. We, neither of us knew how to do the business. Well, we were, yeah, we were. <laughs> we really just write code and argued about what music was playing and yeah. you know whatever. We had to hire uh, my girlfriend to kind of do the business. So so you <laughs> need so you need yeah, to we had too much kind of, to you do. need to find someone because now you've got the business. You've got the business. You just need to find someone with the idea. Yeah, and I think that that's actually really achievable nowadays right. because you've got places like AngelList and other venues where you can find entrepreneurs who are looking for partners. I think so, I think there's more people out there, my speculation is there's more people out there with ideas that don't necessarily know how to organize it into a company than there are people who can organize a company who aren't employed. Well, people, yeah, forward. right. So, so, so people who really know how to do the business mm-hmm. are, are, are in demand in some, or at least maybe they're not in as in demand because they're needed later, but they are as important as people who can build the product, right? So, you know how hard it is to find good developers, like all these businesses and startups, like trying to find developers, like you just can't find it, but they're absolutely necessary. And the good ones are really expensive, hard to find, you know, and, and really good business people, are hard to find too. Now they're usually need later because sometimes you can kind of fake and fumble around the business when it's just a handful of people or, but yeah. And I think honestly, uh, and my reading in the tech space, and I know this is like a tech kind of show is that, and we were talking about this earlier is there's a lot of, when you look at the business side, there's a lot of stuff that's already been published that, that is basically paint by numbers business, but it'll get you 90% of the way there. So let's say you're an entrepreneur. who have got an idea. You can read books and gather enough knowledge about how to go to market, how to commercialize innovation, how to build financial models, how to go through that analysis without actually partnering up with anybody. Sure, it's not as ideal. It is kind of like cutting your own hair with a, <laughs> but there's <laughs> if you cut by the numbers, you might get a good haircut out of it. And to Jason's point, it's going to basically be right. 
Um, it's now programming, honestly, is it, there are some things that are similar to that. Like you have a business idea, but you're not a coder. If it's simplistic enough, you can get 80%. You can kind of yeah. get 80% of a, a if for, you can do it with a proof of concept. Blog. Yeah, there are. <laughs> and so it's really interesting. Like, when do you need that expert business guy? I mean, what's the use case? Well, for that's that? when you just use like Clarity, Clarity FM, and you just like hire them on the fly. But that's not even I, around anymore. I think I bought. But I just want to say one thing. Mm. You people, if you have any amazing ideas, oh, I've got a wow. guy who knows business sitting right here. <laughs> there you go. I think you should send in all your ideas. There you go. <laughs> send them the ideas. <laughs> yeah, send them to that. me. Well, you know, I really do enjoy. So if I looked at the process of business, one thing I really do enjoy is that um, modeling, business modeling. I think mm -hmm. it's really a lot of fun. And I know a lot of people who do um, businesses or startups have trouble with modeling. It's one of those things that is intimidating. Well, because... So sales and marketing and management, that stuff can all be kind of fake. Sometimes it's hard to tell yeah. if people really know what they're doing or they're just kind of bullshitting. But you can't really bullshit a financial model too well. I guess it's, that's true. And then you also have to have a real understanding of all the different parts of the business. So, But that for, but by building the model, you're forcing yourself to at least think about it, which I think is the, that's the useful thing. Like People go back and forth about, should I have a business plan? Should I waste time, quote unquote, with 20, 30 pages of a business plan? And some people say well, they just throw them out. But it's the process of creating the business plan that's, in many respects, the value. Well, I think the financial model... But I thought business the, plans were not required anymore. Well, so the financial model, you could, you could argue the financial model, your Excel financial model, is a new business plan. Yeah. Right? Your, your 10-slide deck mm -hmm. and your financial model is really what's required. So if you go right. to talk to any VC, that's pretty much what they're going to ask for. They're not going to ask for, they're not going to read a business plan. They're going to ask, they're going to want to see your deck and they're going to see your model. Now they may not really look that deeply at the model, but they want to make sure you have a model. Well, that's the thing. That's the truth is like, you know, when I was doing screening, I wanted to know you did your work. I, you know, the investor may not believe a single thing in your business plan and not believe, they may not even read it. They may say, I don't believe it, but they need to know you did it, that you thought about it, that you have a plan. They might say, well, the plan can pivot day one or people invest for a pivot. But I think when somebody goes to me, you know, if I'm, okay, somebody comes and pitches like, oh, I want to be in the market for, you know, online music. Okay. So as an analyst, what do I have to do? I have to go and I have to start researching enough. I got to learn. I got to bootstrap some knowledge on that so that I'm intelligent. I'm respectful to the entrepreneur. And then when I go in there, I find that they don't know certain things about the market it, it that I found out pretty much in a few hours. Yeah, it makes me nervous because I'm like, well, you haven't. You should be the expert as the entrepreneur. There should be no question. Well, what do you think about competition? Because Jason, I've when Jason started doing something, he's never been interested in learning or about the competition. Not not from from an ignorance point of view, just because I hear you. He doesn't want to like get into right, it, right? Right. No. So, so right, what do you think right. about that? Like when people uh, don't know well, about when, competition. So I can tell you two things. One is how I was taught. Right. So my training was you absolutely, absolutely research your competition. You need to know for two reasons. One, you need to know what they're doing so that you can place your product. Just be, because it's, it's usually, it's not an open field where nobody's doing anything. And if, if it is, you have quote unquote, no competition. Uh, that I think is a fault. That's a red herring. There's always competitive. There's, you're competing for dollars in an economic sense. You're displacing the money from the wallet. So you have to understand where are those dollars coming from? What are they trading away from? 
maybe it's not a competing product, but like Coke steals from lemonade, you know, that kind of right, thing. Right, yeah. So then the flip, and then, so that's all, why do you do competitive analysis is for that. And then second one is for exit. Who's gonna buy you? Typically a larger competitor in that space. So, and a lot of, you know, people say, oh, we'll, we'll exit in five years, 10 years or whatever. But if you know who the competitors are, they may be your acquirers. So that's another strategic look of why you would look at competition. Why do you say that I don't care about my competitors? No, I didn't say you don't care, but I, I, I there's, there's been a few times when you've been working on something and then I've sent you like links to people who were, who were doing a competing product and you've been like, I don't want to look at it. You know, I don't, I don't want to think about that right now. And that's what I was going to say. It would, turn, point, it, would, though, it would turn I, right. me off doing the development because it would be, it's negative to like, well, you know, you know yeah, what I mean? I mean, it, I mean, it kind of depends. I mean, I mean, I've only done a handful of things. So a lot of times this stuff really isn't relevant. You know, it's like people just sending to random stuff that's in a nearby space. You're like, I don't what does this have to do with anything? But, you know, if you're talking about like, say, the math game stuff, it's like, I'm not even, that's not even a no, business. No, not, not Math just, Academy, not my, but other I'm stuff. And, but, I, but I feel the same. I mean, like, if I'm working on something, I don't want people to like, send me a bunch of stuff that's going to make me a make me less enthusiastic I think about what I'm working on. I think on. there's practical Do you see what change. I'm saying? Yes. There's two things I was going to say. So I was saying that's how I was taught. But in practice, I think for a startup, there's two factors of why I would say it's it's not necessarily bad to ignore. One is if you focus on competition, it can be demoralizing. People are going to be ahead of you. Maybe they've closed a deal and you don't want anything to sap your own drive. So that's number one. And number two is um, you don't want to, you, the way you win ultimately is to be novel and yeah. to have something different. And I, so if you're focused on competition, there's an anchoring bias to where we got to do it like they're doing it. I, yeah, that's what it was. And I've forgotten the name of your one. Was it ve something beginning with V? Oh, but it was oh, I done oh, Vortex. This. It was I done this. Vor and you vortex. And you really didn't want to look at it or know anything yeah, about oh, it. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah, what was happening yeah. with that, it wasn't so much that they would demoralize or anything like that because it was such a, both both of them were like little dinghies in an ocean that right. were like an effect there. But what it would do is I would end up copying stuff yeah, you'd, you'd, unconsciously. Yeah, right. Unconsciously, I'd yeah. go see their stuff and then yeah. Two weeks later, everything like, how do I solve that page? How did something like, oh, I know. Mm -hmm. And then I'm trying to be look just like theirs. I'm like, I wonder how I got that idea, you know? And then it's too <laughs> right, late. Right. Now I spend this time. So, yeah, like, I don't want to know. I want to come from my head, you know? And Joel Spolsky used to say about this. I mean, he probably wrote this 12, 15 years ago, probably 15 years ago. And he's talking about like how you don't, you want to basically ignore, once you're in the space, like, it's a different thing between deciding you're going to do something trying to figure out what your business should be, trying to raise money. And that's really, really important to probably understand the competitive space, right? Is this worth my time? You have to have an answer for you, that. You have to have an answer for yeah, that, first of all. For the investors. And yeah. you should have an answer for yourself. Yeah. You really understand, is this a game I want to play? Can I win this game? Or can I win enough of this space to make it worthwhile? But once you're in it and you're committed, there's not a whole lot of point of assess obsessing about it. I mean, Phil and I, when we did our first startup, we hired this guy to be sort of the business sales guy. Right. And he had his, he got his MBA from University of Chicago and he was, he was really smart and big deal. And he was going to take us public and all this crap. And we're like, great. You know, Phil and I were like, great. Well, we're going like to focus that. on product development and, you know, and, uh, you know, he, he talked a good game and he seemed like he was going to be able to do it. But I swear to God, once we hired him, he spent so much of time just sitting around going, God, do you think we're going to work? Do you think this is going to make money? And we're <laughs> like, dude, I got news for you. I got to, we're definitely not going to win if we just sit around thinking about it talking about it like we're in the middle of the ocean i suggest you row we're never otherwise we're never gonna hit land and phil and i just got absolutely we'd had so frustrated with it we eventually just fired him because he was just 
useless, but he was, he was just always obsessing about that. And I'm like, it's too late to obsess about the opportunity. And then the thing is to execute, is to do what we need to do to win the next battle. And if we can win enough, enough battles, then maybe we can win the war. And Spolsky had talked about that, you know, when it was at Fog Creek Software, which is, you know, big, big before, um, what's it, Trello, you know, and Stack Overflow. Um, and at Fog Creek, he said, you know, if you, if you obsess about your startup, it just becomes a distraction. You, it's just like, you know how companies don't like to go public because everyone's just constantly focused on the stock mm. price. And it's, again, you're constantly focused on what are my competitors? What are our competitors? Well, they did this. Or we get a debt. And then it becomes like this feature battle because you're all, you're just trying to, every time they add a feature, we get feel, we feel the need to add the features like keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing. And then you get, you're more prone to feature bloat, things like that. So it's just like, and, and a lot of times you, they're solving problems they're adding features and doing this product based on the feedback they're getting from their customers. And you may not have the exact same customers and you may not truly understand why they're adding those features because they're solving some problem that they internally have decided is a problem that needs to be solved. And if you start solving a problem because they're having it, it's like a cargo cult kind of thing. It's a superficial, uh, you're, you have a superficial understanding of why that feature should exist. And that can create lots of problems because then you have this big bulleted pro product. And one of the problems with a lot of products is they become overly complex and overly bloated. And we talk about that with Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma. Companies get overly complex. And products become overly complex. They're hard to learn, hard to use, expensive to maintain, all these kinds of things. And, you know, there was an article about this in um, and a few weeks ago about Evernote. And they're talking about Evernote's 5% problem. And I think Phil Libin, I think I pronounced his last name, the, the, the founder, no longer the CEO, but he used to be the CEO. And he, he said, you know, the, the, one of their 5% their problem is that everybody uses a different 5%. Like if everybody used the same 5%, we could just cut 95% of it, you know? Yeah. But the reality is everybody uses a different part of it. And that's people complain about, you know, Word. They're like, why does Word, Word, Microsoft Word have so many features? And, you know, all you need is blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's all you need. Maybe you don't need Word count so what, because you're this, not a journalist. What is his or answer, if, if any kind of answer to that 5% problem? What's that? I don't know if there's an answer. I mean, I think I think probably some of the answers are, you know, picking a picking a demographic that you're really going to serve that might share have that might have a more common set of features or problems that need solved. Maybe they're trying to solve too many problems at the same time. Maybe they say, you know what, if we cut our market, our demographic into a third, maybe we can have. 20% of the features that we have now, maybe not down to 5%, maybe down to 20% or 15%, but that potential demographic is a third the size, but we get more of them because more people are happy and more people pay more, whatever. I mean, I mean that's, that's my off the cuff. Yeah, and I think there's an inevitable um, creep that happens with these companies where let's say you, you did a competitive analysis and you found out that uh, there was an underserved segment of writers out there that are basically screenwriters or whatever. You, you found a, a niche and then you wrote your niche product uh, and then you're great. You, you hit it. You know, no one else, you're, you're making money and then you want to get growth. So what do you do? You start moving a little broader. Well, you know, screenwriting is kind of like playwriting. Mm -hmm. It's like novelists. So you go a little broader and then you get that and then you go, well, you know, novelists, it's like short, it's like writing in general or whatever, and you just kind of creep the features as like saying, hey, we got a product that's kind of here. If we just added two more features, we could nibble a little out of Word. Mm. And there's a serious, you know, I've been in enough of these meetings where features make sense 
incrementally where they didn't make sense in the pitch room when you were looking at what our target, like it's very easy when you're, an, if we're sitting around like ideating about uh, a new startup, we're going to be very specific about our, our audience and who we're targeting and features that are in or out. But once the product's out there and we've got that cost and we've built the thing, then you're looking at like, well, we could build another whole product for this other section or we could crawl our way across the competitive landscape and just keep soaking up. And eventually it gets bloated. So, and so this is, ra but it's rational behavior. You know, it's, well, it's profit maximization. Well, you know, so very similar analogy that I think most programmers are going to understand is that complexity does not grow linearly with lines of code, right? So 200 lines of code might be a little more than twice as complex as 100 lines of code, but 5,000 lines is probably more than twice as complex as 2,500 lines of code. And that's what sometimes the business people don't understand. You, you, you just add a feature, and instead of getting it done in a week, now it takes two months. You're like, man, you used to be able to add this stuff in a week. It's like, well, the co code base is more complex, and we get to every time we add something in, we have 15 other things that have ramifications, and now we have to refactor, engineer, and they just go pull their hair off. They're like, ah, why is it taking so long? Because the bigger something becomes, the more features and stuff have, the more complex it is, and the harder it is to maneuver, the harder it is to change, and the more f complex it is to deal with. And that same thing has to go with a product itself, even on the surface level, right? We're dealing with the same issue. The more, the more individual features you have, the more complex the user interface is, the more in the user journey, and the, everything. So it's just... It's That's just, why small companies can beat big companies. Yeah, and, and it just kind of goes through this sort of <coughs> life and death cycle, you know? It's like small companies, they become, they become bigger and more complex, and then they have more people, and they slow down and slow down and slow down. They dominate for a while, they, 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 and then they use monopolistic practices to sort of shut other competitors out. And eventually, new entrants come in. They, they like, hey, people become frustrated because this thing becomes bloated or more complex or more expensive and they want to deal with it. And then that little company then bootstraps up and then it becomes the new big company, right? And now it's happened even faster, right? I mean, companies that instead of taking 20 years to hit that point, they hit five years or seven years. Do you remember when, when it's, it, it was kind of becoming evident that Google was going to be a like a really huge company? And there was a lot of discussion about, is Google going to displace Microsoft? Like, is Google going to eat Microsoft? Do you think that they did? No. It, they didn't. Microsoft it, is more valuable now than it ever like was. Like, there was, there was enough room for the giant that Google is and Microsoft. Well, okay, so, well, a couple things. First of all, like, you know, what was it? Is it Adam Smith? This is, this is that the, the, as a economy increases in size, so does it, does it extent, right? I mean, more and more specializations, more and more niches and stuff. So it gets, you know, because you have more and more people, right? And, it, and so... You know, where were we in like 1995 versus 2016? Mm. You know, when when Microsoft was this big dominant Wintel mm -hmm. monop duopoly. I mean, you know, the online computer space is just way more massive, right? So the space for these multiple giants doing stuff. But also, the revenue is coming from different places. Like mm -hmm. Google's revenue is coming from advertising. Basically, that's who that's who lunch they've eaten. The, me, the media industry. Yeah, whereas, but it's not zero sum. Whereas but it's Microsoft not, is not, they, their revenue is coming from somewhere different. But it's not entirely zero sum because the, the economies keep growing. Now, if we get to a point where we just don't have more people, like there might be something like peak population that hits the world in the next 50 years or 100 years where we're just like, well, we hit 9 billion or something. And it's kind of like, you know, become so urbanized that kids become more of a liability than an asset. And so 
we have negative population growth. And when you hit those kind of things, and the whole dynamic can change, right? Because things become very zero-sum-ish. But right now, with just more and more people and more and more economies, country, underdeveloped countries coming into the, the, you know, the first world marketplace, and you know, these things can happen. And, but, you know, so it's not, entirely, it's not entirely like, hey, everybody can have whatever they want, but it's not entirely zero-sum. It's just kind of mixed. But, yeah, I mean, and I, I think know. mostly, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm not as up to date on Google, but I think most of their revenue is as ad based. Yeah, ad based revenue. Yeah, so it's not necessarily. I mean, we think about a technology company like Microsoft who sells products and services, right? Or you know, whereas Google is is an ad marketing. Ultimately, mm. I mean, you know, it's technology. No, no, that's driven. right. That's, that's that's what I was thinking. And so this, it's it's, it's not really a threat to Microsoft because it's not really getting in their world. So it's although like, they have the open office, right? They compete. They give away. Um, free office competitors. Mm -hmm. So, like, well, although Facebook and Google, they really are direct competitors. I would think so, yeah. more so, because Facebook is definitely ad based as well. But Uber, like, once again, becoming, you know, this huge company, it's, they're taking a different slice of the pie. Mm -hmm. So, there's if someone finds some like centralized thing mm -hmm. and just takes a piece of everything from it, that's well. That's, that's what people love, that's right? What, that's, I mean, that's like that's the deal. The deals that you oh, like. Oh yeah. Well, everybody wants that, you know. And then you get those things like the next Uber, the next Google. That people. That's how people talk, and it right. reveals what they want. And they want something that has this massive scale, this platform. The word you'll hear thrown around. Everybody wants to build that. Mm -hmm. Google is a platform. Facebook is a platform. It has a lot of other services that attract people to the platform, but. That's what people want. But, you know, can you do that? Can people predict as investors what's going to be, um, you know, I, I, people try. It might I, be easier today because, because it's possible. You can see that it's possible. We're so connected. There's so many devices. You can see that if someone can think of a way of just taking a little piece of everything from all of those devices, it's possible. Whereas I think before, when, for example, I was promoting all channels, right, that I was, I was building that business back in 2000, it was just not possible to see that you could make so much money through advertising online because it just didn't exist, right? And that was the business model and investors weren't interested. They're like, no, if it's advertising-based, we're not interested. It's a tough sell, right? Advertising-based is still a tough become sell. And those things go ebb and flow, right? They come in and out. You know, people make money. As soon as, soon as so something, something hits a point, a peak, everybody, everybody sees an opportunity. Everybody gets into it, piles in. A lot of, then eventually there's a lot of broken dreams. Everybody loses money. Then it becomes out. Nobody wants to think about it. And then, someone, then, when, then it becomes like, a, a, you, know, a, 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 you know, after a nuclear bomb had gone off, a radioactive but, zone, nobody goes in. And someone comes in, they figure out, hey, man, you can actually get in here. But, and they start making money. And everybody starts filing back in again. But what I mean is, with with all channels, it was advertising based. It was in two thousand. Mm -hmm. No one was making billions of dollars advertising, so it just it, the, the concept didn't exist yet, right? No one was like, online making. Like no one was online, you know. So so you know, Google hadn't capitalized through their advertising model. So when you went to VCs and said, "We're going to make this huge company. And it's going to be based off advertising revenue," they had no frame of reference. But what I'm saying is now, you know, I think it might be easier to see these things because there's so many devices in the world. There's so, so much mobile. If you can just convince people, I can think of a way to get a little piece of everything within this, within this kind of vector, yeah, I so think it's was, more believable. So, so what's kind of interesting about, about what you're actually saying is that when things are hard to see, when things are new, you're not going to get many professional firms to invest. Unless you're already a really successful proven entrepreneur, so they're going to believe anything you say. You're like, hey, he's got magic touch, like whatever he wants or whatever she wants, like give him money. So 
Google could go to the app. They, they just came up with a search engine, you know, kind of a new, better mousetrap, right? And first people didn't want to talk to them. They eventually found one guy who wrote him a check for a quarter million dollars and they were kind of off building stuff or whatever. And, and, but it, this, the whole ad, making money off ads didn't happen until many years later. Yeah. And they could do that because they were already an existing company and they had money. They, and They didn't know what their they revenue know what model was. They, they were searching for a revenue model for years, right? Right. And that was the joke about Silicon Valley. It's like, just get users and we'll work out revenue later. Yeah, but, but in general, you know, despite how they like to advertise themselves, they're very risk averse and they're very pattern. They, 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 they're, they're, they're sort of, I mean, human beings are like this in general, but it's about pattern matching. You know, like what, what are, do, you, do you look like a Snapchat or do you look like an Uber or do you look like a this or that? And they're going to look. And if it doesn't look like something like that, they tend to shy away from it because they need a point of reference. Yeah. You know, they, they need to sell it to their, their partners. They need to convince themselves. I mean, the worst thing is to look stupid from their, from their standpoint. Like, why did this lose money? And if it's like nobody thought that was a good idea, they're just like stupid. And like, oh, no, it was just like this. It's very similar to like nobody got fired for hiring IBM. Nobody got fired for investing in a Snapchat or Uber-esque you Jay, know, competitor, a group, you know, everybody's going to use that. I remember reading a, an email or a blog post by Jason Calacanis about investing in Calm. You know, it's like this meditation app. And he mm -hmm. was basically saying that he could, he could see this being just a huge opportunity. And just, I, could, I couldn't see it. But I, it was interesting, like, that, you know, him who's... Mm -hmm who does a lot of deals, you know, he's in Uber or whatever, but he could kind of somehow project this out and see this as a huge opportunity. Yeah, and has it become one? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Well, it's to I, your point earlier about when someone says it's an opportunity to, for what? Like, what, how do you define that? And somebody would say, well, I, I think it's an opportunity to collect millions of, of active users and how we monetize that is um, that we'll just figure that out. So, you know, maybe he's viewing it as this could be really like globally popular. It's like a long play. Yeah, right? like this This could be, like, you know, it's an opportunity in a more vague way. This is an interesting opportunity. Yeah. Like, because there are, in the investing world, like there are people who are very buttoned up that are looking for repeat plays, like what looks exactly like an Uber. And then there are people who are more speculative. And they, then and maybe, I don't know anything about Jason Calacanis' investing style, but, you know, people might speculate and say, you know what, I like these entrepreneurs. This is an interesting idea. I don't know how they're going to monetize it, but that doesn't bother me right now. Um, it's an interesting opportunity, <laughs> you know. Uh, did you hear, did you see on Hacker News there was some article about a UK-based company, no, not UK, European-based company that just literally clones, you know, things like Uber or whatever. Well, there's one thing. It's called Rocket Something. It's in Germany. That's the yeah. one. And it That's clones in Germany. Yeah. They've been doing this for eight years. Yeah. And wow. they've made like billions. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. That's just, yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of creativity to make money sometimes if you're you willing just, to you just... You just go for a market that those guys aren't going. Well, right? that's what we talked about, I think, offline after the last podcast, is you were thinking about what businesses would you like to do. Right. And I just threw that out there. Just do something, oh, that, yeah, do that, something that, that's already there. Like, yeah. you know, it is like opening up too, the laundromat. Yeah. It's a me too. Yeah. But I think, you know, in defense of the me too, Okay, because and I remember Microsoft got hit on that too. You know, it's that sounds me like too. a blog post. And, and, in, the, right. in defense but of in the de Me Too, in defense of the Me Too, and I get it. Like because there is sort of this noble chivalrous thing about you know uh, I need to have the idea needs to be here. You know, and I get all that, and I, I sympathize with that. But um, 
if you say this is a product and I, I'm going to do it, and like let's say I'm going to challenge it by saying, what if your innovation is I'm just really much better at doing what you did? So you invented this, but you're a really horrible businessman. You don't know how to run a company well. So your costs are very high. The product is too expensive. And I'm saying, you know what? I can provide that same service. I didn't come up with it, but I'm legally able to duplicate it to whatever degree. I can run a better business. I can keep the cost down. That's providing what your expertise is, is you just run a better shop. Uh, now, some people do that well and some people don't do that well. The product's too cheap or it's made inferior or whatever. But I think that what I'm trying to get at is as entrepreneurs, I think, especially in the tech world, we think of innovation as technology innovation, coming up with technology ideas and stuff like that. But there's also innovation in how do you actually operate Execution. the company. Execution. Like Amazon's perfectly great. It's so much of their their expertise and their their genius. They innovate running the company. They're very good at running the warehouse logistics. They just run a really they're brilliant at that. And so Go on. Yeah. So anyway, no, that's my closing point. So this actually, this actually um, dovetails into something I want to talk about anyway, and Phil and I were talking a little bit earlier, which is, um, so the idea of winning, like, do you want to win or are you trying to um, win in a very specific way that are based on ego and aesthetic reasons? Like, I have this idea that I feel is very unique and therefore, and it's very aesthetic to me. I feel really good about it because... It's so unique. Or are you just trying to win? And you know that video game, uh, that, that little uh, mobile game, Hex mm -hmm. Forever or whatever, that fever. I got addicted yeah. to Fever? Is that Fever? I think I it's think Forever. So. I was calling it Fever because I didn't oh, I I missed the R. It's I got the Fever, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So, so I, but I've, I now view it as a sort of meditative game. It allows me just to kind of zen out, you know, just be like, oh, I just want to relax. And one thing I found out about strategy about this game, I started thinking about it, is it was interesting because Phil... I was thinking about this already, but then Phil, I got Phil to start using it. I mm. kind of said, all right. <laughs> Thank you so for he, that. I, get this, <laughs> I needed another Well, he was already playing Soda Crush. <laughs> I got so rid of Soda just, Crush. It I'm just, done with it. It's it was a zero-sum game. It was a zero-sum competition with Soda Is Crush. Is this game like the new Tetris? Mm, kind of. It's not as addictive as Tetris. It's not crack. It's, it's more like cut cocaine. Like, <laughs> that's for the audience who's following along. Guys, and they're listening, it's more like cut cocaine. Okay, okay good. So <laughs> it's just to put it in terms to understand. But it's good. So so Phil's texting me. I'm like, I'm in bed one night. And he's texting me. And he's like, yeah, I've been playing this game. He's like, what's your high score? And he's like, I don't understand what's hard about this. Yeah. And I said, I was okay. baiting you. Yeah. And I said, because I said I got 98,000. He's like, 98,000 was my high school. He's like, yeah, so not that much. And he's like, I don't know. What's so hard about this? And I said, look, what's hard about it is not getting cocky mm -hmm. and staying focused. Because as soon as you get cocky and as soon as you lose focus and you get a little bad luck, you're done. Yeah. And... And so, and, and one thing you have to learn to do, and I have a hard time doing this because it's my personality to do things sort of aesthetically. I like to finish things in round numbers, you know, that kind of dumb stuff. It makes no difference, but it's mm. just like, for, for, mm -hmm. for, for me, I'm always searching for the round number, the closure and a, the clean closure, right? And so I'm like, the key is whenever you see a line of squares or whatever, hexes, take it. Don't try and like set things up to do a triple, quadruple win if you just get the right couple pieces. Because you know what? You're probably not and you're done. And, and, and it, might, it might work seven, seven out of 10 times or even nine out of 10 times, but 10th time you're done. And if you're trying to get a high score, so always take the line. Just take the wins, take the wins, clear the board, 
whenever you can. If there's an easy win, take it. It, it, it doesn't have to be beautiful. Don't fall for the aesthetic trap, right? <laughs> yeah. And so that's what I was thinking. I was like, yeah, this is a good lesson for life is just don't fall for aesthetic trap. Yeah. Stay focused. Don't get cocky. You know, it's like, uh, like that analogy is, locker, don't get hockey. Don't get cocky, kid. There's like that analogy in baseball where don't go for home runs, like win the game, but singles. Yes, it is. It's the get same. on base. Yeah. Just, just keep getting singles and you'll win. Well, that's what Moneyball was about. Yeah. Buying, buying, get on, on base percentage. That was yeah, the whole thing. Right. You win by getting on base. You win hacks by staying focused and going for the easy wins. And, you know, it's just kind of funny because an article just was on Front Page Hacker News yesterday, which was a guy who was talking about Tetris versus chess as lessons for life. Yeah, that was a good one. I mean, he had some good points. You know, he got, got beaten up in the comments about a lot of sort of straw man arguments or whatever. And I, that's a whole different story. But it was just funny because I'd been spending the last week or two thinking about the lessons I learned from this. And Phil and I had been kind of talking about it. I was like, oh, we got to talk about it in the show. But, you know, we're t so we're relating it to startups or, or anything else is like, and, and Phil has actually made this in a certain other points that we've been talking about. He's like, he's like, are you trying to win or not? If you're trying to win, that's one, then you do X. If you're trying to do something else, well, totally you're not fine. necessarily, right, but, you're not trying to right, win necessarily. Right. You're, you're trying maximizing to do some other thing. You're maximizing some other thing. Um, right. You can only, you can only, optimize for one but, thing but at a may, time. But maybe winning is finding that one situation where you collapse eight rows all at once. And you just, you search for that. Well, see, maybe there, that's what, what Jason's pointing you. out is that but it's that's a not lottery mentality. You may get lucky and get eight not lines or whatever. I don't know what the maximum number of lines. I've, I've gotten six. Really? Yeah, yeah I've never yeah. even looked at this game. Well, so. but I'm, but but and you get big points <laughs> because okay. every time you do but more Phil than one should, line, I, I shouldn't. Okay. Well, no let's worries. just explain this for people who don't know. Every okay. time you get a line in Hex Fever, you make a line like connect it, you get say 150 points or something. But every time you add one to that, so you get two lines simultaneously, it doubles it. So mm -hmm. you and everyone knows what doubling does. Mm -hmm. So you get three, four, you get into thousand points. Mm -hmm. Five, because 2, you're, 000, if you're trying to six, crack a hundred thousand, which Jason, right? Is, if you want did to you, score, did you beat a hundred thousand? Stuck at ninety-eight. I can't see. I've gotten, I've gotten about seventies a few times of fifties, but I, I keep losing focus and I, I fall victim to the aesthetic. <laughs> but there's also some serious <laughs> money up there. Six lines pays out big. It does. Yeah, you're looking at six, seven thousand points oh, right. um, on a haul, and that's a lot of points, dude. Well, I mean, well, you wait, wait. So in that case, to maximize, what you should do is you should always spend the first hour going for things like that. Uh, you do, right? And then I the second that. hour yep. going for half as much. Yeah, I the do. Third hour going for half I as think, much. Right. That would maximize yep. your score. Yep. That's what I do. So I would just modify him, and I say when I first begin a hex fever game called hex fever, I go for six lines immediately yeah. because. The consequences are low. Right. I just, the game ends. You haven't spent all the time. I haven't doing, spent any yeah. time. I, I'm at 2,000 points. But once I get up to like 30, 40,000, I become more conservative because there's more to risk. Yeah. Uh, and so then I, I, so I do that. <laughs> I, I, I go for big points early. What's your, what's your high so far? Uh, 71. And that is the same strategy as chess, by the way. So with chess, you try and do a checkmate really fast. Fast, right. But then you're like, okay, pull We back. did that Let's with Command and Conquer. We had, Beginning opening strategies that were very high risk but could win the game instantly. Right. And then once those were played out, if no one fell, then it would be more conservative. Strategies. Yeah, you'd go like, for the go, you'd go for the kill, kill shot. Early. It's like it's like Why with tennis. Well, getting well, a, getting well, an yeah. ace with tennis, you go for the ace. Well, right? our, uh, our buddy Mitchell, who's the martial artist uh, stuntman, you know, guy, and I used to ask him, you know, about uh, you know a fight like what. What was the best way? He's like, just a good right cross. Just take the first shot, knock him out. Stop. Yeah, it's all more about who goes first. First, who goes fight. first. If <laughs> you just take one hard shot to the face, 
99 <laughs> times 100 it's done it's Sorry. over it's the it's the it's the bullshitting around getting a wrestling match and then you, you know anything can happen but you just take that right cross so learn to throw a good right cross strike first it's done that's pretty much it's a it's pretty it's good strategy <laughs> good strategy well and that kind of works with uh, business too and i know and again we brought up microsoft a lot i don't know if that's a theme but microsoft had this technique where it was basically just go to market fast so mm. even if your product wasn't quite ready or there were still bugs it was better to be in the market first and that whole first mover advantage was really in vogue to talk about that um not necessarily the best mover but the first mover um and i know people have responded negatively to that and um and there's still talk of that with mvp well that's what's happening with, that's what's happening with uber so like you know, people are asking, right, like, yeah. there was something publishing about how much money they were they lost in like the last quarter, like they're you know because they're still raising billions and spending oh, billions. Yeah. But they're trying. It's a land grab. It is truly a land grab because I still remember this conversation I had with Travis. This is with this is in like November of 2010, and there's like four people in the company, and Travis and I are doing a screen share, and he's trying to convince me to come up and be the CTO and everything right? you were resisting and i did you're like did, i don't know i don't want your stinking money it's uh <laughs> uber how do you pronounce it it's like <laughs> it's like uber? you know machine learning high frequency trading right. that's cool no, cab hailing not cool travis you're a good guy you mean well but let me tell you so anyway. he so he so <laughs> he says this to me and i basically dismiss it as kind he of says, wishful thing. i'm going to tell you like i'm dismiss it as kind of not bullshit but like come on you know, mm -hmm. and he's like, listen, I've just done analysis of it, you know, and you talk about how like somebody used something and how long do they use it before they stop using it. Right. And there's usually this sure. fall off yep. point, use it and they use it less frequently. He's like, it's reversed with Uber. The more they use it, the more they use it. It's like a drug. Hmm. And he's like, so essentially what Uber is, is we're pushing cut cocaine. Right. Crack. Right. Out as many. So the more people you can get addicted. Sure the better the business is going to be. So it's uh, like, yeah. you want to get in and get people addicted to your drug before so they get addicted, addicted to some to other drug. drug. i got to stop right? you there because you're, you're going to want to cut that out. So. I'm not going to cut that out. That's fine. No, I mean, I'm just saying, this is this is just okay. standard. This is but So yeah, Uber is an addictive service because it works so well for me. It's so much easier. So it's like, it's one of these things that's like, you know, like when they talk about like, you know, there's a couple lawsuits, like the lawsuit in California about like trying to classify, you know, uh, part-time drivers as employees and all this kind of stuff, right? And which is, you know, which would be interesting, should be an interesting conversation, a couple things we talk about with the economics of that. But the reality is, is even if that happens and all of a sudden Uber has to pay a lot more money in terms of um, unemployment and benefits or whatever they end up having the to pay. The scale now. It's, the, it's so scaled. But the price is just going to go up. Yeah, it'll for everybody. just pass The price on. will go it'll up for everybody. It's just going to pay. That's yeah. all it's going to happen. Yeah. All it's going to happen is and you still... It's still going to be cheaper than cabs. You still... You know, and then... So even if you pay $13, now it's going to... You're going to pay 17 Well, because with Uber Pool, right, basically, mm -hmm. the simple fact is they've done, as far as I can see, such a good job with Uber Pool. Since you're sharing the, the cost, it's still going to be cheaper. Yeah. Like, there's it, no way that it can well, be it, so, But the reality is, is that... It's an addictive service because it's people like it and people want it and it's more convenient and easier to use than all these other forms of transportation in a lot of contexts, okay? Not in every context, but in a lot of contexts, especially in very urban environments. Yeah. So to spend as much money as possible to get people addicted is the rational thing to do. To go slowly, to get profitable is 
not the smart thing to do. So yeah. they, if they have to raise a lot of money and they have to just jam well, this, jam and, 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 and flood the market with this stuff, that's what you want to do. The simple fact is, if they did take the strategy of going slowly and building this slow business, then Lyft would be eating their lunch. Yeah, they would be that, done. Because, so somebody because else Lyft would be doing Yeah, exactly. So the one would be done. And it, it, it's funny because that, uh, I totally agree with everything you guys are saying about it. A lot of entrepreneurs, when they would pitch, would say, and I would like, this is, we need to move fast. You know, we need to get this money. We need to go to market quickly. In, analogously to the sort of Uber thing. Um, and often they weren't a speed, I, I would call them like speed deals. Like right. this, they aren't. They like Uber clearly it. is. They yeah. didn't need it. What they were using was a sales technique right. of like pressure and scarcity and momentum. Like yeah. we need to get going. We need to move. We got to get this money. They're doing it for themselves. Their business should actually reasonably say, if you can avoid being a speed deal, you should avoid it. Um, because I think you can learn a lot by taking a measured approach. Like when I was doing commercial innovation, they have basically, you take your business and you pick a target market that's rich with customers and you learn a lot by just putting out a unit in there. And then you learn and then you can mat, you roll it out in a, I'm not saying slowly, but in a more measured approach. If somebody goes, no, 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 dude, we got to go nationwide day one. We got This is a speed land grab. You're going to have to raise more money. You're going to make mm. more mistakes because you haven't gone through the learning curve. Mm. So there's reasons to be, I'm not saying slow, but there's reasons to have a strategy, a rollout strategy beyond just go, you know, launch it. Right, right. But, but, I mean, but Uber's it, not, uh, you know, Uber's I mean, even rolled Uber, out. They, they, you know, they did city off. by they, city. They did, yeah, they, yeah. they, they yeah, learned so it. We went, yeah, so we went, so if I recall, we were in San Francisco for close to a year. Mm. No, more than a year. Yeah. Then it was, I can't remember if it was D.C., then like Boston, Seattle, New York, L.A. You know, it was just kind of boom, boom. You've done the learning. I think actually, you know what's interesting then? Just hearing you say that makes me really think Uber really wasn't no. necessarily a speed deal exactly. in the way they're that doing it now. They did a right rational. Time. They but, did it later. Like yeah. once, once, once it was like obvious that right. this was going to be ballistic. But you know how then many, they're grabbing the. That there's was, a lot of entrepreneurs and, who to come be honest, in. I don't, it wasn't even until Lyft came out that Uber really started. You know, like Lyft came out and basically created that competition. It put pressure on Put them pressure to, on Uber to... You have to think, in some degrees, Uber has to thank Lyft for forcing its hand into the ride-sharing yeah. of the black car. Because ride-sharing is now, and I don't know the exact number, even if I did, it's probably not public, but it's by far the biggest part of the business, mm. right? It dwarfs the black car business mm. because it's a much bigger market. There's a lot more people who are, who are looking for less expensive ways to get around the city than are looking to go in style, right? So so you have to think, you know, some ways, right. to, as much right. irritating they are, it's like, ah, it undercuts price, but that's what stimulated the massive growth. Now, so competition sometimes can be a really good thing for everybody. But the other thing which is interesting that Uber did is so I remember... I remember, so my first trip up to San Francisco, so, so, you know, I was working and I built the dispatch system and Godview and all that stuff, purely from Pasadena. I'd never even used the service. And this was in, and I didn't come up until a year later. It was basically November of 2011. And they're like, hey, man, you should come up for a visit, meet some of the people we've hired, you know, actually use the app, right? I think I've talked about this, saying he had to go out and buy me an iPhone because I have still a clamshell phone. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is she, insane. <laughs> she was teasing me. She's like, sure, you're going to know how to use it. So she goes out and gets it for me. And she's like, look, you can, you can actually use your fingers. And she's like, give me crap. So I go up there. And I remember at that time, we had just launched, I think, you know, kind of stealth launched or just like you have like, just it's not really public, but you just have people using it. It was like, I think it was London and maybe Paris right around that same time within a month. And so right away, so it was after like four or five cities in the US. And then we immediately went to Europe. We went overseas. And the, and the thing was to internationalize in terms of currencies, but also to internationalize in terms of language. Because you could easily have stayed, like Lyft, I don't even know if they're international yet. I think they're still national. Yeah, yeah. But we made the learning early. When we, we made the learning step, we, did, we took on the learning step early before we got too big and complicated. And so all the internationalization and cross-currency stuff got built in before we were too big and complex mm. to make That's a big good, maneuvers. That was a good plan, yeah. yeah. And um, so I think, you know, and I, I'm guessing that was probably a conscious thing in, in, Tra in Travis's mind is like, we need to learn quickly. Right, right. And, and rather than just trying to scoop up this market, it's, it's, it's accelerating that learning curve. So I yeah. always thought that was what probably turned out to be really good news yeah, on his that's part. that's really smart. Yeah, that yeah. was. Um, unless you've got awesome. something to say, I've got something like no, a, do a slight it. different yeah. topic. Yeah, let's change it. Um, I got two things too, so. All right, well, just quickly this one. I think you might find this okay. potentially fun, or at least you could make fun of me. Oh, for, good. For this. So Yay. this is a good one. All right, Fear Press Show. All right, let's okay. Justin. <laughs> Justin. Take so, so, <laughs> I pick on Justin. So Twitter as you know, is not going through good times right now, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I was thinking of an idea that could differentiate them. Oh, yeah. this is the helpful, the more you know. Right. This, 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 this is the unsolicited, this is advice. unsolicited, unsolicited advice. advice. Like, like, I've, Twitter. I've basically <laughs> been wanting to write this blog post. An open letter to Twitter. Open letter. I've been wanting okay. to write a blog post, but I can't be bothered yeah. to write the blog post. Or it's not that I can't be bothered, I just don't can't have enough time. Bothered. So anyway, I just want to tell you my idea for Twitter, but it could work for any social network. Okay. And it's it's going to be out there now with right. this discussion. Bring okay, so Twitter is the real-time social network, right? right? Now, I know that Facebook is a real-time social network, but it's not kind of the same, like... Things do happen in real time, but it's not postulated as the real time social network mm -hmm. that like downs governments and all that kind of stuff. But Twitter plays so little, pays so little attention to time in their UI. So is the missing ingredient time? Like, could they pay more attention to time? And if you think about time, is it linear or, vert or is it is it vertical or horizontal? Actually, I, I think time is horizontal. Because our whole experience of time is horizontal. Like we walk around. I mean, isn't isn't the equation like you know you got to move through space to create time? So, but mm -hmm. you're talking about reorienting the UI to be a horizontal scrolling. Well, what I, what I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about Minority Report. I'm thinking about the cards, the tweet cards. They should basically move in just really slow time, sideways, and uh, but generally they should play with that concept of time mm. like just like um video editing software everything goes horizontal everything so by the way listeners justin is sort of mimicking being a, in, in <laughs> yeah, minority part with his virtual reality gloves <laughs> <laughs> He's doing it a, a pantomime show. So if you can only see this, <laughs> this display. Is, I'm, I'm, the reason I'm not talking is my breath has been taken away <laughs> by such okay, the Okay, so, so ima imagine, imagine like you're at one of those tech conferences right. and you have, you have like this slow moving wall going sideways and then all the tweets are on the wall and they can kind of go that, they move that way and then you can click into a conversation and they move that way and you can see 
stacked yeah. against time. But then more than that, like with um, video editing software, you could like flush it, flush it left and flush it right. You could like scrub it, you know, that way. Yeah. So you could kind of scrub it. So you want to create tweet report. Tweet report? Like minority yeah, right, report. Exactly. Tweet so, report. I mean, if you think about the future of like, like UIs, it's going to be virtual reality. And that works for like, that works for humans. It works for Twitter, like this kind of sideways. Oh, you know, so you know what you need. Okay. So you have this like minority report virtual reality of these kind of things. You build with like, was it 3DJS or whatever? Was it D3JS, you know, you right. have kind okay. of things. And, and, and you have, and you can kind of, kind of throw stuff around and go into drill conversations. Well, you need like precogs that are mm -hmm. predicting what the conversations are going to be. So it's projecting, <laughs> using some deep learning algorithms, like this is probably what's going to happen next in this sphere. And it just kind of creates some kind of overlay. Well, they already <laughs> have those going on. Pre they have what? Well, I mean, that's what the government's trying to do. They, they want us, the NSA is trying to predict a terrorist attack or predict but, what's I mean, going to happen based app. on social feeds. Like, but that would be cool, wouldn't it? It is cool. That but I think cool. that that technology, you know, it always filters down. So whatever is considered cutting edge, you know, stuff. I mean, could somebody ultimately be running like predictive, like what precog? I mean, what was that? That was like predicting someone's going to do a murder before they yeah, did so it, right? Yeah, so these precogs are going to predict what, what conversations are going to happen. What's going to happen next? Well, because you remember, like they're doing this now on Facebook where people are analyzing people's Facebook pages to find out if they're mentally unstable but, and that might be shooters. But you know yeah. where that works right? really well, what you just said is if you if in time so once again like you can zoom out of time so you can zoom out so at the moment it's real time then you zoom out to right. like an hour and you use that kind of technology that you're just speaking about to basically pick out the most the important thematic. the best this the best is going to be an important hour. conversation this is going to be an important conversation this is this is yeah. the kind of thing you're able to start retweeting this is going to gather a lot of right momentum. and then you zoom out a day. so get in early so you get in early be a thought leader in this thread and you zoom out a day, and then you see the most important thing. You zoom out like a week, you see the most important thing. Everything's and then you, a stock market. So you can basically <laughs> like swipe the whole screen. Like you can be at a, 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 like a resolution of a month, and you can swipe the whole screen backwards and forwards. And so at the moment, their tweets just get lost in sound, yeah, right? But this yeah. would this would basically if if time was a, a core component of their interface, right. their tweets would not be lost. In the this same would be way. a badass. Uh, demo at the very least. I mean, it would look awesome if you yeah. just you had a D3. It would look cool. I can see it already. Especially with your miming there up at the... <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I really? think you need to do it. No, no, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I but... picture, I'm picturing him, but I'm picturing him... What, yeah. I don't want the minority gloves, but I'm thinking like with the Michael, Michael Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. The, the kind of... <laughs> I'm right there. With the white glove with the sequence. little... I'm just saying that this is how Twitter could, make, could differentiate, could become interesting. And it, it could also work a little bit on mobile. Like, so, you so what do you want from what? them? What do I want? If they do this, what do you want from them? A car? Who wants to be the CTO? Like, just, or no, do not want just acknowledgement. Yeah, just acknowledgement. Just, yeah. just mention yeah. th special thanks to yeah. Justin. Well, that, would, that, would, that would be a little hollow if it became a big deal. It's like, oh, I was going to give the idea and all they gave yeah, me that's was why a thank you know. You only want recognition, huh? That's bullshit. You don't want like 1%? <laughs> uh, based on an idea by Justin Vincent. You're so sweet. No, I he's just, he's just, you know, <laughs> generous. No, but I, I do think I like that, it. You, you do like it. Well, I'm not a huge, okay, so I'm not a huge Twitter user, so. But this, I never really this, when you say he's not a huge Twitter user, he's not a user at all. No, but this I might make you be interested in it, right? Like something You like, have the background. This might make you be interested in it. Well, I You're feel, looking at, well, you know, my criticism, if I were to fix Twitter, I think that 
it tends to be the the strength of Twitter tends to be the now, downfall. Now here's the real is, fix, right? Well, no, I don't know if this is the real Mine fix. Mine is just surface deep. No, is the real I just fix. I just feel like so much of Twitter has, at least from my understanding, just been little bites, and they're non. They just I I I don't feel the need to. I don't know. There's not enough nuggets to it that make it interesting. Not enough me. nuggets. <laughs> not enough. Like there are too many nuggets. <laughs> it's nugget free. Nuggets. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's like my same, mind. It's, I, what is it? It's, <laughs> it's, it's too many nuggets. What's the word? Is, I'm looking for okay, nuggets. Okay, Phil, I nugget. thought you were about I to say something, something really deep, but I did. you said there's not enough nuggets. nuggets. I mean it. No. So, not, not enough, enough nuggets. nuggets. More nuggets. Said, <laughs> that's pretty good advice. I'm like, more nuggets. That's my blog post. That's the title. More nuggets. More nuggets. I just, that's what I want. All right, okay. Gold nuggets. Actually, <laughs> all right. Uh, so, Jason, you had to, you had a couple more, right? Oh, so speaking of uh, blog posts, yeah. Uh, why you should probably write a blog post is so I got I, I got quoted in a yeah a Reuters article about I've reached trading again. Again, again. This is my third third time. So the first time was like in some trading magazine. Actually, and the next time I think was like in Huffington Post or I don't know. I can't remember. It's probably on the website somewhere. I'm sure I mentioned it. It was like a year and a half ago or two years ago, and now. A guy from Reuters called me up and said they were doing a start. They were doing a he was doing an article on Quantopian and Quant Connect, I think. And it's these sites where you go on and use their historical data and you can create a strategy and test it and, you know, and trade it or whatever, connect it to your brokerage account and trade it and that kind of stuff. And the, it was what was interesting about it is the guy was really he already had his point of view. He just needed a quote from me to sort of mm -hmm. use to back up his idea. I mean, it's like, which, which, you've, which you've heard from people complain about journalists in general. It's like, they're not necessarily doing a research study to find out the truth. They have a perspective based yeah. on their limited understanding of it. And then they go and construct an argument and they go cherry pick, pick they go and interview people until they get the statement they need and they put it in, right? right. So he wanted me to say, in effect, that they were somehow, putting people at risk, like that, that, that you were very easy to lose a lot of money and that they made money by telling people that it was really easy to make money and it was Did very, very it? risky. And I, I said, no, I, well, I said, look, it's no different than a brokerage or wealth management firm. You can lose money. They make money by, you, you, by a lot of people or people using their service, right? <laughs> I, I can just imagine how they finally edited Jason's, what he said. You can lose money at high frequency yeah, trading. <laughs> right. Well, actually, no, no, it was, and he's very fair because he sent okay. me the quotes and then I was able to edit them slightly. I mean, oh, the, okay. some of the English was kind of screwed up in language and it wasn't, it was, wasn't even exactly what I said. So I cleaned up and it was exactly, and he published exactly what I said. Hmm, okay. But, I, but I, I wanted it to be fair. And I said, you know, bottom line is you can lose money just like you can in the stock market, you know, investing in a brokerage or... You know, and I, I, he didn't post push this part, but just even the real estate, anything. And the people who are in these industries make money by people participating in it. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, but, you know, that's just the reality. When there's randomness, when there's chance, and when you can make money from that, you can also lose money. Um, so anybody, it was, it was funny, though. The, so the two things that are funny about it, is, of course, the ongoing, the, the ongoing story about how I wrote that one article on why I quit high frequency, or why I quit algorithmic trading to web startups. I still get constantly get emails. It's like writing a hit song. It's like writing a Christmas record that, <laughs> yes. gets, that gets played Except every Christmas. Except I make zero dollars. <laughs> you get a lot of it. In, and I also I don't make any money off it. I read that piece and I think it falls into, um, I liked your quote in it. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's worth everybody to read it. But 
I, I, I kind of have a beef with people like that guy because, you know, I guess his point that he's making is that these people are lured into the world of high-frequency trading. They're, they're naive about the probability of making money, and they spend their lives essentially to this futile effort, right? Um, and, and, and you could debate that, and maybe he's right, and you can't make money in the market, and blah, blah, blah. But where's all this? Why target high-frequency traders? Most of them, I mean, realistically, they're affluent people who've got money, um, I think of if he's making that as a social argument of like, this is a wrong, I would look at the casinos and gambling as a much more insidious problem of people thinking they're going to make money gambling. We know that the gambling games like blackjack and all that, and they, they have an edge it's just to the not casino. News, though. It's not news, people but it's like, if money you, gambling. yeah, but, the, but it affects people who can't afford to lose it. It's much more um, broadly negative. The lottery is another thing mm -hmm. that people buy these lottery tickets. There's no way to, the, the respected return on a lottery ticket is, is you know, for was, every dollar you put in, you know, you get a penny out. It's horrible. And yet, and those prey on the people in our society who are less affluent, the high frequency traders. I mean, what subset of our population is being tricked or fooled into mm. becoming high frequency traders. I just, I know, in a, you know, mm. and you can make an argument, but even those guys, they're intelligent, rational people. We live in a free society. Why can't someone say, I think I can make money uh, trading with my computer? Well, uh, that's what I said to him. I said, listen, you know, that's a making point. money trading is like making money losing weight. It, it's, it's, it's a, a small number of people can lose a lot of weight. Some people lose a little bit of some weight, and most people don't lose any. And it's the same way. It's like, yeah, some people are continually successful, but you know, making money. They just they're good at it. Whether they trade manually or whether they trade algorithmically, and there are people who just tread water or whatever. And there's a the whole thing, but most people don't. And a lot of times, it just comes down to there are people at the top of whatever profession who have a lot of natural ability and a lot of dedication, and that combination puts them way ahead of everybody else because most people don't have the dedication and work ethic um, and persistence and all those things it takes to be great at anything. Whether it's chess or tennis or playing the violin or trading or losing weight, whatever. You can do it. Most people just don't. And it's just... Yeah, yeah and there's a lot of misallocation when it comes to um, any effort in life. Like there are a lot of people who will put fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 into a, an educate, a master's degree and they will never see that money. Mm. Meaning, or they you know, didn't pursue that law degree. You know, they got their law degree, they paid all this money, and then they decided they didn't want to do it. So there's all this lost money. And if somebody goes, I want to take $100,000, and I'm going to see if I can hit the market with it, and I'm going to think I trade, and they blow it all. They've lost it, you know. And I would think, like, look, everyone's taking rational bets on themselves. Some people think they're going to be lawyers, so they apply to go to law school. They go, they get the debt, they come out, and they can't get a job. I mean, it is a problem. I don't think it's a thing that you look at high-frequency trading and say that's a problem that exists only in high-frequency trading. Like to Jason's point, it is like any other thing that has an achievement hurdle. There are people who are going to go for it to be a lawyer, go to be a politician, and they're going to spend their money. They're going to put it on credit cards, They're going to, and they're going to go bust. Um, and we have to agree that that's a fine state of the world. So um, <clears throat> we've, we've done one hour 45 yeah, Ooh. when you got to get home, I think your hall pass is about to expire. <laughs> <laughs> that was one really big nugget. Yeah. <laughs> now this was a lot of fun. Yeah, I liked it. Good. I hope it was useful for people. Definitely. Yeah. All right, that's a wrap. We're out.